Well, good morning, church. Welcome. Happy Thanksgiving week. Is there anybody else in the house whose favorite week of the year is this week? Anybody? There's a few of us. Oh, I'm so excited. I love Thanksgiving week. Hey, thanks for bringing the church together and, uh, and being here with us this morning. Just a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, next Sunday after the service, after the 1040 service, we're going to be decorating this place and making it Christmassy. I know some of you guys love that. And so if that's you, I uh, just invite you to come. You can actually come to the 1040 or you can come to the 9 and hang out at the 1040. And then uh, probably around noon, we'll start uh, Christmasifying this place. So you are welcome to come. We're going to bring lunch in. So we'll have some food for you. And it's usually uh, a fun, festive time. So join us. Um, also, we've got a group of people from uh, the garden here who love to run. And uh, they're passionate about it, right? As a church, we, we take seriously this call to like rule and subdue creation, and part of that is our physical bodies. And so we've got some folks here that are deeply in that, and they love to run. And so they're going to, I think, just over the next several months, start like a little running club. And uh, we'll just say, hey, we're going to Cascade Valley Friday at 5 o'clock, and put the word out. And if you want to go, go. If you don't, don't. But so running club is coming and uh, we'll do some more announcements on that, but just wanted to put that on your radar. And if you, uh, if you wanted to start running, but um, needed a little push out of the nest to do so, consider this your push. You don't, there's no skill level that's required. Um, but that's, that's going to be happening here pretty soon. I think actually the first run, I think they're trying to schedule it in January. So we're going to separate the runners from the not runners. Actually, just kidding. Anybody and all are welcome. So more information to come on that. Okay. So um, it was my sophomore year of high school, junior varsity basketball game Friday night. Gym was absolutely packed. Over 2,000 people crowded into the gym. Second quarter had started. We were on defense and I stole the ball just beyond half court. And as I stole the ball, I started out like a streak of lightning, and I had a pathway of glory straight to the basket. And the basket that I was going to be performing my layup at was right in front of the student section, and it was a raucous and loud student section that night. Actually, it always was. And... um, a little more context. On this particular Friday night of this basketball game, um, my parents' family friends from high school who were married uh, decided they wanted to come and they wanted to see me play. And so they're in the audience, and they also just happened to bring their sophomore and high school daughter with them. So the stage is set, and I've got a pathway to glory that is laid out right in front of me. I've already stole the ball, the crowd is excited, and it's my opportunity to lay the ball up. And as I made my way to the hoop, um, I could have just laid I could have just laid it up, uh, secured the bucket, but what I decided to do in the scenario that I laid before you, full gym, family, friends in the house, um, I like to jump as high as I could, because um, I could jump fairly well, and I like to show that off. And so as I made my way to the hoop, I leapt with everything that my left leg had within me. And uh, there was a lot of physics behind the jump. There was a lot of force, and the ball came off of my hand um, with the force that I put out through my body from my leg. 
And the ball went and it hit off of the backboard right where it should have hit, but it just hit with a little more speed than I intended. And the ball careened off of the backboard and missed the hoop by about, oh, maybe a foot. In the student section, it was, oh, yeah, woo! As soon as the ball bricked off the backboard and went, oh, and just moaning, like 300 students moaning in unison. And then luckily, one of my teammates was there to clean up my garbage, and they got the points, and we got the score. But redemption came about four minutes later. Same scenario. I stole the ball just beyond half court, and I made my way like a streak of lightning. Also, again, towards the student section, and my pathway of glory was laid out. And I decided, since I made such a fool of myself previously, I can't just lay the ball up and get two points. I got to get up and show everybody how high I can jump and make it look good. And so redemption time came. I get to the hoop. I am all by myself. There is not a soul near me. And I leap with everything I have. And the physics <laughs> translates through my body. The ball comes off my hand. It hits the perfect spot on the backboard. And it bricks off of the same spot, missing the hoop by, oh, about a foot and a half. And the student section that was going, yeah, whoa, right in front of me. So the game ended. Uh, my tail was between my legs. I went home to hang out with my parents' friend and their daughter, who was my age, and I excused myself up into my bedroom, which we will call the Dungeon of Shame, for the rest of the evening. What happened is Brian missed the mark, quite significantly so, in front of a couple thousand people and some family friends. And because I missed the mark, I, who after my two steals was feeling very high and feeling very good, after the ball bricked off of the backboard in front of that same crowd, I was in motion from higher to lower, and my face was put to the blush. If you've been here the last two weeks, that makes sense for you. That's what the term shame means, one of the terms in the New Testament of shame, the movement from higher to lower and to put the face to the blush. I was devastated. We live in a world where typically our identity and our self-worth is determined by what we do, our performance. Let's call it a performance-based a performance based identity. What that means is, I just said it, is that who I am is 100% determined by what I do. Who I am is determined by what I do. And when we live in that environment where my identity and my well-being and my worth and my value is 100% connected to what I do, here's the world that we will live in. We will live in a world of ping-ponging back and forth between shame on the one hand when we miss the mark, hopefully not in front of 2,000 people, but we will feel shame when we miss the mark, but when we nail it, we will go to pride, right? Pride to shame, pride to shame. And when we're in pride, in a performative-based identity, well, what the Proverbs tells us is that shortly after pride hits, then comes 
the fall, right? You're never going to stay in pride for long because you're always just a stone's throw or a layup away from deep, dark dungeon shame. But in a performative-based identity world, shame, pride, shame, pride, back and forth, but you're stuck in the world where shame will become a normal and routine part of who we are and how we live. But that's very different than the kingdom of God that our gracious Father invites us into. God doesn't invite us into a performative, identity-based world. He invites us into something that's very different. He invites us into a relationship where our identity and self-worth and value is something that is gifted to us. I like the word bestowed. Right? Like Kemp talked last week about the son who returned from the faraway land and his father bestowed upon him a royal robe of covering. Right? It was just gifted, granted, given. It was bestowed over him. And that is how God treats us. He bestows upon us an identity and a value and a worth that is inestimable in its power, in its strength, and in its value. And in this, now we're, now we're free from pride, shame, pride, shame, pride, shame. And now what we actually get to carry is two different things. We'll call it confidence and humility. Confidence, because if God is as good as he says he is, and as creation declares him to be, if he declares over me an identity, then I can know that that is good. And I can receive that with confidence. But I also, I'm not going to carry that with pride because that's something that's been bestowed upon me. I didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything other than just receive it as a gift. And so that sparks and promotes humility in the heart of the person who receives it. God's kingdom is one of bestowed identity, a declared and given worth and value that he just blankets over us. And it's very different than the way of the world. And if we do not receive this invitation from him to shift how we view ourselves, to see ourselves the way he sees us, we will never get out of shame. We will never walk away from it. It will always be just one step away. Now, I believe this to be true. And what you should be saying right now is, hey, Brian, that sounds great, but I don't believe you yet. Show me, show me the money. Show me why this is true so that I don't just take your word for it, but I can know that this is what God is actually saying to be true. Because if it is this good and if the invitation is there, I want that, but I need to know that it's a rock-solid foundation that is really there. Okay, so now that we're all on the same page, here's what I want to do. I want to direct your attention to all of the New Testament letters, every single one. You can actually, you can check my math here. Um, but in the New Testament letters, there's a pattern. And here's the pattern. Someone writes the letter, and that person will declare their name. And after they declare their name, they will declare their identity. I, Paul, an apostle and bond servant of Christ Jesus. Those, those are identity statements. Paul says, here's my name, here's who I am. 
in all of the things that the writer will say regarding who they are. It's not things that they have done in order to receive this identity. These are bestowed identities that God has granted and gifted to these writers. So Paul starts out, Peter, James, whoever, they start out with I am declarations of a bestowed identity that God has given them. And then here's what they say next. They will say to you, the church in Akron, the church in Corinth, to the church in Ephesus, right? To you. And then they will pronounce upon this church more identity statements. Here's who you are. Bestowed identity from the Father straight to you. This is who you are. Next section. It's there. Like, verify this. Here's who you are. Next thing is, here is what is due to you because of who God has declared you to be. Grace, mercy, peace to you because of who you are, because of who God has declared you to be. Bestowed identity, that's you. Now, because that's you, here's what is yours from him. Grace, peace, mercy, a couple other words that the New Testament writers will throw in there. This is yours, this is do you, because not because of what you've done, but because of who you are, because who he's declared you to be. And then, this is where, like, We don't often understand the pattern of the letter at the beginning so that we don't understand where the rest of the letter makes sense. Now, for the rest of the letter, the New Testament writers will say things like, um, here's what needs to change among y'all. Your thinking about this is off. Let's correct that. You're doing your behavior over here. We got to look at that and we got to think about that and we got to address that. But here's the idea, because this is who you are, and these good things, grace, mercy, and peace are due you, right? Because of who you are, these things that you're believing and doing, they don't align with your identity. They don't match. There isn't a congruence and a coherence there. So because this is who you are, these are the things in your life that need to change, that need to align with who God has declared you to be. The opposite of that would be a performative identity New Testament letter where Paul would switch it and come out of the gate and say this, you need to change this, stop that, really stop that, and start doing this more and you better do this way better. And then in the end, they would say, if you can do these things and hit the mark, bullseye, 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 then you can prove yourself or make or earn yourself into becoming a beloved son or daughter of God or a saint and citizen in the kingdom. But that's not the pattern that's laid out for us. It's not a performative identity invitation that God gives. It's a bestowed identity. We don't do in order to become Because we are, we are invited into new and transformed doing. I want to point out, I'm just going to go to one letter. 2 Peter, if you have your Bibles, join me here. And Peter Peter does this, I think, as I was reading this week, I'm like, yeah, I I just want to dig into this one a little bit. We don't have time for the beginning of every New Testament letter. 
But, I, but 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. here's how it starts. Simon Peter, right? That's his name. Now he's just going to declare some identity statements about him. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. These are identities that have been bestowed upon him. And now he says, to those, and this is the people that he's writing to, and it's to us, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I, I just love this. To you who have obtained a faith of equality standing, equal measure, a equal measured faith, Peter says, you have, re, you have this in equal measure with ours. And I think Peter here is writing on behalf of the apostles and the Christian leaders who are with him. Now, if we're living in the world of earned identity. Peter can't say that. Because at this point in Peter's life, Peter's an all-star. He, he messed up big time before, right? We know that the account in the Gospels where he fell on his face seemingly every single day. And he went through the denial of Jesus. He even went through the portion where he was having a hard time receiving Gentiles because he was living in the old frame of thinking. But at this point, as he writes Second Peter, Peter, Peter's leading the church. He's an icon of the faith. He is Christian all-star at this point. And if Peter is the all-star, then let's just, be, let's just be truthful and say we're the peons, right? And if we're living in a performative identity world, Peter can't say that y'all have received a faith of equal standing with ours, because we haven't. We haven't performed like he's performed. We haven't healed people miraculously like he has. We haven't delivered sermons and delivered wisdom to the, to the New Testament churches that are being established and growing. We haven't done any of those things. And in a performative world, that means that we're not on equal standing with an equal faith of his. But Peter knows we're not in a performative identity world. So he can say, because... Right, All of these things have been bestowed upon us. He says, you who don't have the resume that I do, you haven't done the miracles that I've done, you haven't taught thousands like I've taught, you haven't led the church in its totality the way that I have, but all of you who have a lesser resume than me regarding what you have done, you have a faith of equal standing with us. Okay, that's great. But I, I want to know, how is that possible? Because we live in a world of performative identity where our worth and our status is based upon what we do. Who I am is determined by what I do. So Peter, you've got to give me something to pull me out of that world. Here's what he says. You've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the... And notice, this is nothing that you've done or I've done. Here's how it happened. Faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The faith of equal standing is something that has been gifted to us that is outside of us and it's sourced in God himself. His righteousness, his goodness, his, his performance, his doings declare over us our beings. 
It's a very different world that we've been invited into. And it is a world where shame melts and drips away. But it's hard for us to, by faith, enter into that world. But it's the invitation that we get every single morning. Now, this thing that Peter says, God's identity caused him to do some things on our behalf that bestows upon us an identity. If this is true, it's good news. I want to dig even a little bit deeper into this. Let's just, let's just go down the rabbit hole one more step. Um, and I want us to go back to Genesis chapter 15. Right? Because I, I want us to see, again, how God works in his kingdom so that we can know that we're being invited into something that is rock-solid, sure, founded, so that I can live my life and believe on this. Okay, Genesis chapter 15, the context here is God is um, fashioning a covenant with Abram. Right? But what God is doing here is a pattern of what he continues to do, and then we'll make some connections to uh, the New Testament here in our lives in just a second. But Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7, I want to read some verses for you, and, um, and we'll explain. Genesis 15, 7. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? How can I be sure in a rock-solid way that these promises you've given will be mine? And God said to him, all right, Abram, here's how you can be sure. Bring me a heifer, a cow, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought God all these, and he cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now this scene where Abraham is assembling animals, and with his sword or axe, I do not know, but hacking them in literal half. This is, this is an appalling scene to us modern people who don't live in a world where we ever see blood. But I just, I just want to assuage your conscience here that in the ancient Near East, in Abram's time, this, this was very customary and normal. And every person that's familiar with this culture would know what's going on here. And what's going on here is the formation of what's called a suzerain treaty. A suzerain in the ancient Near East was like a king-like person who had uh, lands and people under them. They were a person of prominence and they, a, a vassal or a king, something like that. That was the suzerain. And then the suzerain would enter into a relational agreement with someone lesser than them. And in this relationship, the suzerain would agree to certain terms that I will be this for you. Typically, it meant protection. It meant um, provision. When provision was needed, it meant a lot of things. But the suzerain, the king says, I will be this for you. And then this lesser person then says, in this relationship with you, here's what I will do. But everybody has clearly spelled out stipulations for what they're responsible to do in order for this relationship to be what it needs to be. 
And then here's the symbolism, and here's why Abram is cutting these animals in half. Because this suzerain treaty would be formed on an altar. And these animals would be cut in half and they would be split. And then on one side of the altar is like one half of these animals. On the other side of the altar is the other half of these animals. And then here's the pattern. Here's what happens next. That the two parties engaging in this relationship, this covenant that's being cut, right? You're cutting a covenant. Both parties would then stand shoulder to shoulder and walk through and across this altar with these animals sliced on either side of them. And the symbolism was this. If I do not perform my responsibilities that I'm declaring that I will today in this relationship, then may what has been done to these animals be so done unto me. It's different than signing a contract that we can hire a lawyer and get us out of. It's different than a handshake agreement. This is cutting of a covenant and you're declaring, I will hit the mark on all the things that I say that I will do. And if I do not, then may this be done to me. It's a heavy thing. And the blood and the gore and all of that declares and reminds each party what a heavy thing it is. So now here's what we should see in the next section. We should see God as the suzerain and Abraham as his servant partner, but of a lesser nature. We should see them walk side by side through these animals, declaring that they're going to enter into this relationship and they're going to do all the things that are required in this relationship. Let's read in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... Right? Hene in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's a statement of exclamation marks, meaning, check it out. See what's going on here. Behold, see this. You got to see this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to the Euphrates and beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond. Here's the question. Do you see Abram anywhere walking through that covenant with God, walking through those animals? The answer is no. Abram is strangely absent, but what do we see? Well, we see God visualized or concreted so that Abram can see it. We see Abram, uh, sorry, we see God visualized in two different manifestations, a blazing torch and a smoking fire pot. And Abram, as we learned just in a couple verses earlier, Abram's like just sitting off to the side observing all of this. What does that mean? It means this, that regarding the relationship between God and Abram, all the things that are required for God to do in the relationship, God says, I got this. It's on me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to bullseye everything that I say I'm going to do for you. I'm going to nail that mark, Abram. You can trust me. And regarding the things that Abram is supposed to do in faithful, obedient relationship with God, God says, Abram, you can't do it. Sin. Sin. Sin, brick of the layup. It's appalling how bad you're going to do, but that's okay. I'm not asking you to do it because I got this. 
I got this. Everything that's required from God's end of the relationship, God says, I got it. Everything that's required from the man's end of the relationship, God says, I got that too. So this relationship will be so secure because it's not dependent upon your doings. And then what happens over 2,000 years later? This is a pattern here. Is that Jesus shows up fully God saying, here I am. I am faithful to the covenant. I love you. I am for you. I want to be in relationship with you. You are my sons and my daughters. I am also your king and I invite you into my kingdom. And Jesus says, I am here to perform all bullseye, bullseye, all the things that are required of me. You can trust me. And then Jesus says, right, what's required of you, man, I also will take upon myself. Jesus, fully God and fully man. He's both. Why is he both? Well, because he's got two sides of the covenant that he's got to fulfill. He's got two sides, not just one. He can't just sit on the throne in heaven. He's got to come here to do the bullseyes, bullseye, bullseye that we could never perform on our own. That's why he came. He came in love and in grace and in kindness to bullseye the whole thing for us, to fulfill all the things that are required from God to us to fulfill the covenant relationship. Jesus says, I got this too. And then Jesus' earnings, right, all the doings that he performed, he lived the law flawlessly. He loved God and he loved man. He did everything and he nailed it. He never missed, not a once. Everything Jesus did, said, thought, bullseye. But he did that for me and he did that for you. Oh, and then in addition to that, then for all the misses, all the bricked layups of lives and decisions and thoughts, all the things we've done that were absolutely missing the mark, then Jesus, in addition to that, goes to the cross and lays his life down as a sacrifice to cover over all of those things as well. And so that's why Peter can say to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A bestowed identity based upon the performance of God himself on our behalf. So when we read in the New Testament that you are a child of God, you are beloved, you are the sheep of his pasture, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, you are forgiven. We read that he takes great delight in us, that we are the righteousness of God, that we are God's handiwork, that we are God's special possession. These are things that have been gifted to us because the covenant has been fulfilled for us. But this is 100% how God sees us. And what that inspires in us is, or should be, I should say, should be a great confidence 
Because what God declares never becomes undeclared. <laughs> what God says is true never becomes untrue. Oh man, that's, oh, that's so rich. God, thank you that you are saying this about me and that this is true. Confidence. But also humility. As David said, wow, God, what is man that you are mindful of us? Why would you care for us this much? Why would you show up in the flesh, Jesus? And why would you perform all of this for me when I was such a failure? And in my failure, why after performing the covenant responsibilities for me, would you lay your life down in the same brutal fashion that those animals were sliced? Why would you do that for me? Humility. Confidence in what he declares over us. Humility in what he declares over us. This is the invitation that God puts forth and puts in front of us. And if we don't make the shift from an earned identity, earned value, performance-based worth, we will never be free from shame, ever, ever, ever. So long as we have to perform our way into dignity and value and identity, we are just one step, one layup, one decision away from the dungeon of shame that just awaits to grab a hold. But the good news is, that Jesus has covered our missing of the mark in his sacrificial death, and he has hit the mark on our behalf with his beautiful life of covenant faithfulness. And so he's in the position to bestow that upon us. And he just wants us to trust him by faith, trusting in what he has done for us by faith, we have obtained an equal standing. And then from there, from this place of knowing who we are and being rooted in this bestowed identity, this value and this worth, from that place, now what God does is he invites us into a whole new way of doing. A beautiful way of living out over time as discipleship happens, of seeking to align with the help of the Spirit which He pours into us, an aligning of our doings that makes sense with the incredible, high, lofty beings that He's declared over us. That's the invitation. An invitation into behaviors that are fitting with our lofty position. Band, come on back up. We're going to sing a little bit more. As is uh, quite appropriate to the one who performed on our behalf. We've got one more week of shame uh, next week. I should say we don't have one more week of shame. We have one more week of um, being released of the grip of shame, to be precise. Um, but in my experience, uh, yeah, these truths are hard fought for. 
the performative identity and performative value is so deeply ingrained in us that it doesn't die hard. It's going to be a death by a thousand cuts, and hopefully this morning is one cut. And hopefully tomorrow when you wake up and you're tempted to believe that your value is determined based on your doings, maybe you'll remind yourself, oh God, here's what you declare over me. Here's what you say is true of me because of what has already been done on my behalf, and I'm going to choose to believe you in that. And then shame just gets another slice, right? And then you wake up the next day, and it's midday, and you just bombed in the morning. You just didn't do well in whatever you were doing, and you're tempted to go into your dungeon of shame and hide from everybody else. But you say, no, no, I, I didn't perform well. I didn't do well, but that's not who I am. Here, and to remind yourself, I am a beloved child of God. I am a saint. I am a citizen in the kingdom of God. I am, right, all the things that he says you are. And then shame, just one more cut, one more stab, one more slice. And then over time, I think our, mind shed, our mindset shifts, and we actually start to believe that what God says is true of us actually is true of us. And at that point, we've got a fighting chance to just crush shame in our midst. But that's the offer and the invitation. Father in heaven, thank you um, for loving us so well and for gifting us so much out of your love. Father, we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it, and we never could, and we never will. But that's what makes the gift so much more exciting. And so, Father, now as we sing and as we seek to reckon these truths over us. Father, I pray that your spirit would magnify uh, these truths among us, that you would liberate us in ways that we need liberated, that you would relieve us of the pressing doom of shame that often covers us, and that in its place that you would cloak us, or I should say, remind us that we are already cloaked in the royal robe of righteousness and the bestowed value and identity that Jesus has placed over our shoulders. And then let us do and live and grow from this place so that our doings might align with who you say that we already are. To your glory and to our joy and to the great hope of the world that's desperately seeking a different way. Father, we ask that you would do that among us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.